Good morning, Asbury. Good to see all of you and hope that you're surviving. I have things falling around here. I just hope the microphone works today and doesn't explode on me like last week. Um, we are uh, continuing this series in the world mission of the church. And you may have noticed, of course, that we did not rush so quickly to the New Testament, but we really started way back in the Old Testament because it was very important that we root the mission of the church not in either task which we do or even a command that we obey. But first and foremost, it must be seen, though it's never less than those things, but first and foremost, it is the heart of God. We're seeking to discover God's heart for the nations, God's heart for the world. And so we actually began back at the original covenant of Abraham with Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and we saw how God said to Abraham, he was going to, through him, bless all nations on the earth. From the very beginning of the covenant, the first day of the covenant, God is already declaring his ultimate purposes. We saw it renewed in Genesis 22, Genesis 26, and 28. We also saw last week how uh, in the Psalms, uh, we saw the beautiful way that the Psalms brings this into worship and declares God's love for all peoples. And even in Psalm 6, uh, 86, goes so far as to say that even Israel's mortal enemies, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, etc., even they will be brought into the covenant of God and will be just like a native born. It's, it's remarkable, this vision. So we're actually looking at kind of selected texts from the law and the writings and now the prophets in order to exemplify this great theme. And today, and of course we're in Lent, I thought it'd be helpful if we were to bring up the suffering servant songs in Isaiah, which is, this is one that we had read before us. There are four uh, passages in Isaiah that are widely identified as a distinct collection of texts within Isaiah itself. And these all highlight a suffering servant. They're found in Isaiah 42, 1 to 9. 49, 1 to 6, which was read earlier, 50, verse 2 to 9, and then basically Isaiah 53, but it starts out with Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Now, all of those texts are really important because it shows Yahweh sending out a, his servant, his messenger into the world. So you have a sending God who sends out into the world. You find the, the suffering servant experiencing uh, suffering and pain in that mission. He experienced a lot of suffering, and in, in, uh, it's a vicarious suffering, we find. And he'll be re- suffered and rejected, but he'll be vindicated. And finally, that suffering will bring about justice, salvation, and blessing to all nations. And, and, and throughout the songs, the, the pre- the, the, both uh, Kol Mishpahot is used, as well as Kol Goye. Remember the, the idea of tr- all the tribes of the earth, as well as all the ethnic groups of the world. This is not about politics. This is not about saving the political systems of the world. They're on their own. No, just kidding. Uh, God is saving peoples, okay? God's saving peoples. And so this promise uh, is brought out in the, in the songs. In the first Suffering Servant song in 42, 1 to 9, we have this introduction that the messenger is God's servant, God's chosen one. He is endowed with his spirit. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. And, and the word justice here in this context is mishpat, which is in Isaiah, a legal judgment between Yahweh and the Gentiles. And the way it plays out in the court scene just prior to the song is that 
you know, God basically, Yahweh summons all the false deities of the world. And our world is full of false deities, isn't it? It summons all the false deeds of the world and declares them to be false gods. And they're declared to be as nothing. And then Yahweh comes back in the song and says, okay, since the world has exhausted its own resources, in other words, its own gods cannot save them, therefore, I'm going to introduce my plan. And the plan is a surprise plan. Because we're, we're already expecting the prophet, priest, and king motif. Instead, we get a suffering servant theme. The suffering servant of God comes into the world. He will bring forth, uh, you know, mishpah, justice to the nations. And the bring forth here is hifel, the, the, is, a, is the conjugation of hifel conjugation, which is causation, right? Causation. How many of you had Hebrew yet? Hey, praise the Lord. Bill, are you encouraged, brother? They're held here, okay? Hifel is causation, right? So this is like a whole uh, biblical interpretation of history. Because God causes things to happen in history. See, our world tells us that things just happen. We do things, they do things, this nation does things, or things randomly take place in history. But the Bible says God causes justice to come forth. He causes, in fact, it's the same word used for God causing Israel to come up out of Egypt. Okay, in the same way, God's going to cause the nations to come out of their bondage into his promises, into his blessings. That means that God's in charge of history. Amen? God's unfolding history. He's, this, is, this is the kind of Hithel world that we're in in Hebrew, where God causes history to unfold. So what happens is, in this unfolding, there are three things that come out in the song, and all of which kind of say the same thing in three ways. There will be a greater exodus. They all knew the one they were involved in, right, as Jews coming out of Egypt. This is going to be a much bigger exodus. It's going to involve all nations, not just... So even their exodus was simply a foreshadowing of a much bigger exodus. Secondly, an enlarged covenant. They all knew their covenant. You know, they, they all were in that covenant, but God's going to do a much bigger covenant. It includes everybody in this room. And then thirdly, it was going to be a blessing to all the nations. So the idea of a greater exodus and large covenant and a blessing nations is really three ways of saying the same thing. God has got a big plan. He's unfolding, and that happens through suffering. The third song, we'll come back to the second, because I want to use that as our main text, um, is powerful because it really brings out the fact that this involves suffering. And this is where Isaiah, and why I delayed Isaiah till today, because Isaiah, which is sometimes called the fifth gospel, Isaiah, which is the most, you know, quoted you know, so many times in the New Testament, Isaiah is trying to unfold the fact that God's promise in Abraham is God's person. Okay, that's the big insight here. And there's all along we've been hearing in the text like last week in, in Psalm 87, 67, as well as Genesis 12. I'm okay, the Lord's calling. I want to answer it. Hey, I got something wrong on the text. You mean it's not the Hifel? Really? Um, just kidding. <laughs> After all, he wrote it, right? So, but no. Um, so we have in the passage uh, Isaiah revealing to us that the promise of Abraham is not just a generic promise. It comes to us in a person. Okay, God's promise is God's person. That's the title of the sermon. So it is in the second psalm, or in the third psalm, that we actually have the fact this song is, this servant is going to suffer. Uh, and he's beaten, insulted, he's spit upon, he's shamed, etc. It's a very, very powerful song. 
The fourth song, and this is great for Lent, this is the one we know the most. This is Isaiah 53, though it starts a little before that, where we have those amazing texts. And if you ever have seen, uh, I'm sure you have, The Passion of Christ by Mel Gibson, I have seen it. Just to remind you, those who think I only watch Star Trek movies, I actually have watched Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. And remember, in that film, when it opens up, it opens up with just text, doesn't it? Right? Just text. Or anything else, you see just the text. And it has those words from, from Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. Okay, these are words, strains that we're very familiar with. Isaiah 53 becomes so important. He tells the, in, the, in the passage, Yahweh's servant is told, you know, see my servant. Granted threefold honoring, it's a, it's a coronation thing, raised, lifted up, highly exalted. But then it's also brought in, but this exaltation will only happen because he is marred and disfigured, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And then, of course, it's vicarious. He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. This is introducing the, the whole doctrine of a vicarious atonement, substitutionary atonement, into the lifeblood of redemption. Uh, by his wounds we are healed, etc. All this, uh, Christ becomes the suffering servant and, of course, the suffering lamb. Now, the second song, which is the one that our text is today, is 49, 1-6, opens up with this wonderful, glorious declaration. Listen to me, you islands, Hear this, you distant nations. So he's calling all the nations of the world. This is the summoning of the nations to himself. All right? That's the whole mission of the church, ultimately. We are doing what God has promised. He is summoning the nations to himself. We are seeing them summoned forth by his divine power. And yet, here he call, it happens again because of the servant. Wonderful playing here on this song between uh, gathering of nations and the scattering of the nations. So you have the, remember in the Tower of Babel, the nations are scattered. Now God is through redemptions regathering the nations. It's a great theme for Genesis 11 and 12 right there together in the, in the Bible. Well, finally, it climaxes in verse 6. And it, it, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I love this uh, particular passage. He says, now, now put yourself in Israel's shoes. They've experienced captivity, invasion, you know, the, the, uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, 722, 586. They have been, their land has been taken away from them. Their precious temple destroyed, like Estes Chapel, poof, gone. No hope, uh, nothing but rubble. Everything they loved and longed for, gone. They're, they're captives, they're in a foreign land. What would be your greatest hope? What would be your greatest hope if you're in that situation? Your greatest hope would be the restoration of your people to Israel, right? To bring the tribes back, to recapture our former, our, our former glory, to once again sit under our own vine and fig tree, all of that. They were expecting, you know, oh, to be back in Wilmore. You know, oh, when Esther's chapel was there, have it rebuilt. Uh, Jessica come up and say, opening words. Ah, how wonderful. But instead, the Lord interrupts all those longings and says, it's too small a thing 
For you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. In other words, that's a great vision. It's a wonderful vision. It was the second part of Abraham's promise. I will you go to the north, south, east, and west. It was part of the covenant. God had a land promise. But in the final analysis, it's too small. The restoration of Israel to the promised land is too small a thing. Instead, he says, but I will also make you a light for the Gentiles to the nations. The goyim there, that's the goyim, the nations of the world, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Remember that phrase, which we'll look at later on in this series, but that phrase becomes the privileged phrase to actually say someday the last spoken words of Christ in his public ministry. Now, witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the ends of the earth. The exact same phrase in Septuagint is found here. So here's this amazing vision of God's desire, which will encompass all nations, God's mission to Israel, and recognizing that the vision is actually about the all nations of the world. It was too small a thing to simply recapture part two of the Abrahamic covenant. We must remember the original plan to bless all nations on earth, and God's promise is God's person. Now, if you take these four songs as a whole, I'm going to come back to a little more on second psalm, but, and you go to the book of the New Testament, we don't have time to explore this, but do we have a slide here? Yeah, look at this slide. All right. 85 times Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament, plus many allusions, 18 out of 27 books. And what you have before you is just a few examples of the song of the Isaiah suffering servant songs quoted and applied explicitly to Jesus. So this is not something that, you know, I'm simply thinking about here. This is something that we've been taught by the New Testament. So, for example, in that very crucial part of Matthew's gospel, which we don't have time to get into it, Matthew 12, 18, 21, Matthew stops and quotes the entire first four verses of, of Isaiah 42, 1 to 9, that first song, and applies it to Jesus Christ. So here's Isaiah telling his audience, I'm sorry, Isaiah, Matthew telling his audience, he's not just coming as prophet, priest, and king, he's also coming as suffering servant. This is huge theologically for Matthew's audience. He also, by the way, I mean, we, I don't think it's up there, but in, we have an example in Luke, uh, the same thing. Luke does it much earlier when you have Simeon going to the temple and Simeon takes the little baby, the infant Jesus in his arms, and he quotes Isaiah 42, 6 that you'll be a light for, right for revelation to the Gentiles. So even in Luke, it's brought in very early in Luke's gospel. So the, the gospels are trying to connect the suffering servant songs to Jesus Christ. The second psalm we'll come back to. The third song is in Matthew 27, 31, which uses language. It's not a quotation per se, but all the language of the, of the third song is quoted in terms of Christ's passion, spat upon, beaten, hit in the face, all the things we mentioned earlier are applied to Christ. The fourth song, of course, is the one that's most well-known. So many uh, quotations in the New Testament. Um, Matthew, he took up our infirmities, carried our diseases, showing the vicarious suffering. John 12, 38, Romans 10, 16. Who has believed our message, which is how it begins? Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So we're already predicting the unbelief of the world. And then Acts 8, of all play, amazing counter, isn't it, where the Ethiopian eunuch is in his chariot, and he opens his scroll, and it comes to the prophet Isaiah, 
Isaiah 53. Now, do you believe in the providence of God or not? Okay, so, um, so here is eunuch, in the Ethiopian eunuch, in the chariot, and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads these words from the, from the fourth song. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, etc., etc., et cetera, and says, is this referring to the prophet or somebody else? And Philip says, this is a gospel moment. And Philip explains how that song is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You have, of course, uh, 1 Peter, Romans 15, you know, those who not told about him will see, those not heard will understand. Romans 15 explains a Gentile mission in terms of the servant song. 1 Peter explains the, uh, how the life and passion of Christ is meant to rescue lost humanity through two quotations, 1 Peter 2. So all of this shows you that the New Testament took these songs from Isaiah very seriously, and you should be really careful to take time to study these carefully in your ministry. What I want to bring to a close on, though, is how Paul uses uh, this song in Acts chapter 13, 47. They've been rejected from the, the synagogue context, and they go out you know, from the, the synagogue, and Paul makes this statement in Acts 13, uh, 27, and it's really amazing. He has a such a quote of the, um, 13, 47. He makes this quote of this passage. He says, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves word of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Because it's a really important point in, Mar in, in Paul's uh, message. They've, of course, been doing all the early penetration of the synagogues, trying to sow Christ, the fulfillment of Jewish promises, Jewish hopes, Jewish blessings, and then they get rejected. So he tells them that, you're rejecting me, so we're going to turn to the Gentiles, and then he has to provide biblical basis for this. He didn't say, well, okay, this is a new idea, we've got to find some way, it's like, you know, we've got to you know, grow, grow this movement. No, he says, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Quotes Isaiah 49.6. Now, clearly Paul believes that the, the, the Jesus Christ is the suffering servant that, God, the, that Yahweh has sent into the world. He totally believes that. What is surprising here, and I will hope if you have the book of Acts before you look very carefully, what he says and what he doesn't say. What you might expect him to say when he introduces the quotation is this, for this is what the Lord has commanded him. All right, if you go back to Isaiah 49, verse 6, this is a clearly command to him, the suffering servant. So the, the uh, Yahweh says the suffering servant is too small a thing for you, my servant, etc., etc. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you, that's the Messiah, the suffering servant, may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is the Missio Dei. God's going to send his servant into the world. So you would expect Paul to say, this is what the Lord has commanded him. Alto, him. He doesn't say alto. He says, who men? The Lord has commanded us. Us. I thought this was a command to the suffering servant. I thought this was a command to the Messiah. What in the world is this us being inserted in here? What is clear here is that, and this is the great, beautiful Frankly, I think Wesleyan's captures better than anybody, but it's part of the Christian understanding of, of the gospel. On the one hand, this is God's mission in the world. God sends his Messiah into the world. This is God's plan. We've got to get that. But yet, he draws us up into it, right? 
he fulfills it through us. So Paul, by using the word us here, this is what God commanded us, he is actually showing that his ministry is an extension of God's promise to the suffering servant. That we are actually bearing that into the world. We are the extension of Christ's light to the Gentiles. The global witness of the church is the means through which Jesus Christ brings his light into the world and to all the Gentile nations. By the way, uh, Paul later says this even more emphatically in 2 Corinthians 5.20 when he says, and this, to me, this one verse, if there's ever a verse that captures the essence of ministry, it's this verse. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are his ambassadors. And he goes on to say, God is making his appeal through us. Notice what it says there? God is making his appeal through us. It's not our appeal. It's his appeal. So when he goes on to say to the world, be reconciled to God, this is God's appeal. God is, God is the one that's seeking to redeem the world, and he's chosen to redeem the world through us. We become his instruments through which he redeems the world. So when we say we're his ambassadors, what we mean by that is we are his representatives and he actually makes his appeal through us. And Paul, another, another point says, we actually even preach the gospel to him. When, when we're in a poor congregation, you know, my first congregation, I was at Nacoochee uh, Valley in Georgia. I got there and I, I was like the lead church in this charge, a four-point circuit. They were so excited, you know, and I was going into this church. This is the mother church of the circuit and all that. I get there my first week. There's 22 people there, all right? And one of the lay leaders said to me, in kind of a moment of enthusiasm, maybe misplaced enthusiasm, he said to me, he said, we are so excited. Everybody really came out today, all right? I mean, the next week we're down to 10, all right? This was like a tough beginning. But I remember Paul says, wait a minute, you're preaching to me. I mean, you're preaching to the Lord first. And, you, and, they, and the, the congregation overhears the message, all right, it's a great perspective of ministry. We, we proclaim the gospel, we witness to people, we serve people, but all along it's God's appeal through us, his, his work through us. Otherwise, we end up, you know, like in the, in the, in the flagging Kiwanis Club, trying to shore up our membership. That's not what we're doing. I, in fact, I want to close with a story about that. I, I was um, really interested. Uh, I love anything that has to do with Scotland. I love Scotland. And there was this point uh, a few years ago where the Pope was elevating uh, certain people to the cardinal, the, the role of cardinal. Okay, that's a really a big deal. That's the people who wear all the reds, what we call the cardinal bird, a cardinal. This is a, a great honor in the church, and it, there's not that many cardinals. And I said, out of that group, that the next Pope comes. So this is a big deal. So one of the cardinals that was elevated in this consistory that they have was a Scottish bishop from Scotland. So, of course, it all takes place in Rome, and there was a, a, a tiny Scottish nun that was there, and she was so excited that her bishop was being elevated to the cardinal, the cardinal. So she was standing there, you know, and she had her little Sanders flag, waving it, and what made it even better was she was from Ayr. Okay, if you know Scotland, Ayr, Scotland, is in the southern part of the country. It was the home of Robert Burns. And this is the seat of Scottish nationalism. This is the, gave us, you know, old Lang Syne and, you know, uh, the best laid plans of mice and men gang after glay and all of that. It's amazing, okay, the Scottish heritage in that part of the country. So here she is from, the, from southern Scotland on the, you know, the borderland, the heart of Scottish nationalism with her little flag waving it. 
And so a Boston Globe reporter was there, and, and he interviewed her and said, hey, you know, why are you here? Oh, she explained she's so excited that her bishop is now becoming a cardinal, and she's waving a little Scottish or St. Andrew's flag. And uh, he said, well, what's your, what do you think about the church? And what's your, you know, what's your, and then she turned very gloomy. And she said, oh, I'm so worried. And this is her exact phrase. I never forget it. She says, reporting the Austin Globe, she says, the churches are getting emptier and emptier, and there just aren't any young people anymore. All right, now this Scottish nun believed, because she had been taught to believe, because this woman had been around for many years, and so she had grown up in a different time in history, and she was taught to believe that Western Europe was the absolute heartland of Christianity. And therefore, if things weren't going so well in Air Scotland, then the world must be a disaster. So she was naturally expressing all of this concern about the future of the church. Well, let me just remind you, and I want to remind that dear Scottish nun, she need not worry. You may look around and see a thousand signs for worry. Indeed, uh, the North America is the fastest emerging mission field in the world today. We, we understand that. We have moved into a post-Christian you know, post, uh, Western world. But don't ever confuse a post-Christian West with the post-Western Christianity. Those are two different things. We, we are in a post-Christian West, but God is raising up a post-Western Christianity, right? There is a tremendous explosion of the gospel all over the world. And the reason for that is because Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We have no, we have no fear of the, of the church's demise. You should have no, zero fear of the church's demise, your denomination may be struggling, may pass away. So many denominations have come and gone over the centuries, and maybe yours will someday hit the dust as well. That's okay. It's okay. It's painful, but it's okay. What matters is the church of Jesus Christ, it will go on. Because God is building it. It's his body. It's through his church that he proclaims the gospel to the world. The church is never simply an instrumental body, you know, like a, a good parachurch organization where we could just figure out if some group out there could figure out how to evangelize better, we just turn over to them. No, the church is what God's building in the world. This is his redemptive work in the world, to build his body into the world, to, because otherwise we end up with just an untethered message of salvation. It's about individuals responding to something Christ did 2,000 years ago. When in fact, it's, it is that, but it's also about us as a community embodying all the truths of the new creation. The new creation to break in, the beautiful prayer that Megan prayed, everything she said is exactly right. We have to embody all those prayers, and that happens in community. It can't happen just through individuals. You, as I said many times here, you can be justified on a deserted island, but you can't be sanctified there. Because God has these annoying people on either side of you that you've got to get along with. And I promise you, whenever someone tells you, you've got to leave that appointment, it's just horrible, you know, that you've got all these problems and so-and-so and, and so-called and so brother rock and sister sandpaper. <laughs> Let me tell you something. When you finally decide to give it up, and I'm going to throw in the towel, 
and I'm going to get Brother Rock and Sister Sandpaper in my rearview mirror. You get in your car and you let all your stuff up in your moving truck and uh, y'all go, you know, move to the next location. You unpack your bags and guess who meets you at the door of the parsonage? <laughs> Brother Rock and Sister Sandpaper. Because every church has them, right? And guess what? That's, that's God sanctifying you. God purges you. God uses all of that for his glory. If nothing else, it produces humility in us. Because we realize it's not about our techniques. And there'll be times where you'll preach a brilliant sermon and you'll look up at some point in the middle of this brilliant sermon you spent the whole week preparing for and -and so-and-so, sister so-and-so, brother so-and-so is sound asleep. It could even be your own (laughs) mother-in-law. Your father-in-law. And it can be kind of disheartening. But then you recognize that God is making his appeal through us. God is doing his work. And the whole context of these suffering servant songs is that God redeems the world through suffering. That's the surprise. We expect a prophet, we got a prophet. We accept a priest, expect a priest, we got a high priest, a great high priest. We expect a king, we got the king of kings, the Lord of lords. What we did not expect was we also got a suffering servant. And it was through that suffering that the world is redeemed. And we actually bear that suffering. And Lent reminds us of that. We bear that suffering in the world, the world's rejection, the world's hatred, the world's even dishonoring us. Because we know that in the end, God is building his church. And he is drawing the nations to himself. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you are on mission in the world. That's so comforting to us, because if it was our mission, we would totally mess it up. But we thank you that you are even using imperfect vessels. You're making your appeal through us to the world. And we just thank you that it was too small a thing for your Messiah to simply restore Israel. But Lord, you helped us remember the original promise that you would bring your salvation to the ends of the earth. Amen.